in reality, as much as parents and coaches and other people may resist this reality, sports aren't really that important. They're a luxury. They're an opportunity to do something. It's not life and death, even though it may feel like that at times. So when we have youth participating in sports, it gives them an opportunity to experience loss and to grieve and to bounce back or to rebound in ways and in situations that are not life and death, that are not 100% serious. I'd rather them take risks playing sports than take risks in some social situations or in situations with drugs and alcohol. Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Jean Baresson. I'm Khadija Booth-Watkins. We're two child and adolescent psychiatrists at the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds at the Massachusetts General Hospital. We become a sports podcast now, and I'm Jean Lasso. Oh, my God. You know, you know but <laughs> <laughs> not really, but I do like that show. And, you know, it's, it's, I can't wait to, for the next season. It's the first, it's the first series, literally the first series on television that I've watched. Everybody well, I, 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 I told I told you to watch it like two years ago, and you didn't oh. listen to me. It, now Someone I'm else listen- had to tell you, and that was valid. But okay, okay, just kidding. But we're going to talk about sports and mental health in young people, the good and the bad. And we're very excited to welcome Dr. Jonathan Jenkins, who serves as Assistant Director of Psychology Training for the Department of Psychiatry at MGH, and he's co-chair of the department's Anti-Racism Task Force. He also works as a clinical psychologist in the Child and Adolescent Outpatient Psychiatry Department and serves both as a clinical psychologist and certified mental performance consultant MGH in sports psychology department. Dr. Jenkins is author of Wednesday Afternoons with Dr. J, a book that serves to whimsically explain psychotherapy and play therapy uh, to young audiences. He also founded a private practice called Mental Fitness and Psychotherapy that serves the emotional and performance needs of those in the greater Boston community. So we're thrilled to have you today, JJ. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about today's topic. And, you know, Dr. J is near and dear to my heart because um, uh, I'm from Philly. No, my my dad's side of the family is from Philly, North Philly. Really? Yeah. yeah what, what, part, what part of Philly? Uh, they're from North Philly. A lot of my aunts live in Lower Marion, King of Prussia. Lower Marion, that's where I grew up. Oh, nice, nice. You and you and Kobe Bryant. Lower me and Mary. Kobe Bryant. And he was a little after me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay. So um, let's start with you, JJ. How, how did you get into working in sports psychology? So, you know, what exactly is it and what surprised you most about it? So to, to think about how I got into sports psychology, I think I got to go and tell a little bit about more about myself. So my parents met on a blind date to play tennis. Uh, so sports had always been a part of my life. Question, yes, my mom whooped my dad. Um, and so we'd always been a family that had had sports been part of our life and our lifestyle. And I grew up playing tennis for a while, then transitioned to playing lacrosse. And so I personally had learned a lot through sports, particularly as I had struggles with asthma as a kid, having to stay inside for recess, but really wanting to be out and be active. Um, I, my life then transitioned to become a clinical psychologist and deciding that I really love the bedside manner and talking to people, but also the problem solving of figuring out what's going on in somebody's life and watching them blossom right in front of your eyes or be there for a really stressful experience, which I'm sure kind of encouraged you both to kind of be in, in the field as well. 
And then there was an opportunity at MGH to work with athletes in particular through my mentor at the hospital. Jumped at the opportunity. Um, I had graduated graduate school with some sports psychologists who were in my class and hearing about the work that they were doing to help empower people through the environment, the atmosphere, the arena of sports was attractive to me. And so I took the opportunity to do that. And I also did some additional education in the field. And uh, it's gotten me to where I am, where um, I've done that work for probably about past four to five years. Really enjoyed it. Actually, longer than that. Now that I think about it, pandemic has truncated everybody's uh, approach to time. It's probably been about six or seven years. That's that's really awesome how you're in a, your passion into your work, which I think makes the work that much more enjoyable and meaningful. I'm curious to know, how do you approach professional athletes different from young people? Or is, is there a difference in your approach? Um, I think the main difference is that for professional athletes, everything happens in public, right? So not only do they play their sport in public, but a lot of their private life plays out in public as well. And so there has to be some care and consideration to the fact that they lack a sense of privacy that the average person has. And so when working with youth athletes, we can have conversations where we are able to fully unpack uh, challenges or trials or tribulations a lot easier. But for professional athletes, we have to be aware about how we unpack these things because they live so publicly so that they have the space and the resiliency to be able to cope and deal with it. That being said, um, their public lifestyle and their public persona really does give us an opportunity to leverage a lot of the leadership skills that they have or leadership opportunities that are available for them and also what sports provides in terms of resilience factors. It's a great place. You're involved with a bunch of people working towards a common goal. Uh, you're able to experience uh, loss or success in a constant daily battle or daily struggle, things of that nature. So there are resiliency factors as well as risk factors, and we try to mitigate that as much as possible. Now, if, if I were a young person, under what circumstances would I find myself needing help from a sports psychologist? And noting your book about child psychotherapy, how, how does psychotherapy come into play, pun intended, when working with young people in sports? I imagine it has the same, some of the same principles as therapy in the office, but perhaps it's somewhat different. And I'm sure you both experienced this too. I think there's a misconception that you use either a sports psychologist or clinical psychologist when things are trending downhill. And sports psychology offers the opportunity to get in front of people when things are just normative or when things are really going well as well. And so promoting psychology as a anytime, any place type of assistance, as opposed to we only want to contact a therapist or a clinician when things are trending downhill. And so that's why I, one of the reasons why I love sports psychology, because you can access it and you can promote or encourage people to access it when they're trending high as well. And that's something that I leverage and really try to take into the work that I do on the clinical side. When we're talking about performance and excellence, we're talking not only about achieving it, but how to maintain it. And performance and excellence does apply to, you know, sports and what you do with your body, but it's also the mental health perspective. How can you be excellent in how you do your mood management? How can you be excellent about how you do your self-care? All those uh, goals are just equally as important as it would be kicking a soccer ball or, or, you know, shooting a basketball. What are some of the benefits to participating in organized sports? And is there a benefit, is there a different benefit at different stages of life? For instance, is, does a seven-year-old benefit from sports in the same way that a 16-year-old benefits from sports? It's a great question. I think one of the benefits of sports is skill acquisition. 
Um, as humans, one of the priorities that we have and one of the musts that we must do is we need to be refreshing our skill set so that we're able to kind of maintain and exist in the world. And when you expose young people to sports and another opportunity for them to gain skills and go through the trials and tribulations to adapt to a challenge so that they can have ways to build resistance. In reality, as much as parents and coaches and other people may resist this reality, sports aren't really that important. They're a luxury. They're an opportunity to do something. It's not life and death, even though it may feel like that at times. So when we have youth participating in sports, it gives them an opportunity to experience loss and to grieve and to bounce back or to rebound in ways and in situations that are not life and death, that are not 100% serious. I'd rather them take risks playing sports than take risks in some social situations or in situations with drugs and alcohol. So I think that that's something that provides an avenue and an arena for people to do that. In terms of the age difference, um, there are ways in which person contextualize at, at 16 and self-actualize, excuse me, at 16, that they can't at seven, but that personality development, that resilience and what you're going to try to build in terms of resilience for a seven-year-old and what you're going to build in terms of resilience for a 16-year-old is going to be similar with the 16-year-old. We're building towards them, hopefully leaving the house soon and being able to take on the responsibilities as being chronologically identified as an adult in their environment. And with the seven-year-old, it's really about trying and failing, but getting back up, getting excited about the learning process, getting excited about assert, asserting themselves in an environment of sports. And and so we're talking about sports in general, but if we break it down and think about if we're talking about organized sports, you know, friendly play at recess, if you're playing for a neighborhood team, or even if you're just in gym class, are there different benefits that you can reap from those different um, ways in which you can engage in sports? Sure. Um, I don't think everybody needs to play organized sports. Um, I think there's physiological and mental and emotional benefits of just being able to get a group together and be able to organize a game. So I'm an 80s baby. I'm 38 years old. Hopefully I don't look like it. Um, and I grew up in an era where we would just meet in the neighborhood and just figure out the game for ourselves. We would sometimes play basketball and sometimes play kickball, but we'd often play games that we'd invent on our own come up with the own rules, come up with the way to evaluate the rules and then just go and play. And so I think one of the things that this generation lacks is that creativity to kind of come up with these spontaneous games on the spot, because there are a lot of things that are challenging for their attention, whether it be the tablet or the phone, having those moments where you have to sit and create a game, come up with fair rules, and then judiciously play the game and, and uh, experience the rules on either side, whether they benefit you or they don't, is something that I think is a part of those unorganized activities. And then when it comes to organized sports, the commitment that's involved to sign up for the team, do the tryout, make the team that you want or to not make the team that you want, and then follow through and, and have that commitment to play the entire season, with navigating the ups and the downs. I think that that's something that's important too, in terms of building resilience, the frustration tolerance for both the young person and, and their potential parent or parents. So we've talked about the benefits of participating in sports, but we also know that there are times when sports go from being from fun to simply being another source of stress for kids. Um, and, and at what point should parents be concerned and recognize when it's too much? I mean, when are we pushing our kids too much? It's a great question. And I think it's a hard question 
Um, what I would encourage any parent to do is to seek out advice, counsel, ask friends, ask the coach, ask a sports psychologist. We're, we're more than happy to consult on the situation. But when it's becoming clinically significant, when the sport is starting to interfere with the normal functioning of your child or the person that you're thinking about, that's when we really want to step in and help that young person reevaluate their relationship with sport. So there are obvious indicators for anybody of any gender that could be uh, inappropriate weight loss, that could be uh, inappropriate exercising, that could be uh, mood challenges, uh, tantrums on the court that seem inappropriate or on the field. Those are types of symptoms and sounds that might encourage us to further investigate the situation, uh, but also could be um, the person becoming elite overnight and getting a lot of attention and a lot of focus. So they might be performing well and they might manage it, but they might need an out to talk about it privately and confidentiality and with confidentiality in terms of how their overnight success has really changed some of their relationships or changed the way that they view themselves. So can you describe some other forms of stress that you've seen in, in, in kids with sports? So I think a, a main one that we often forget about is physical exercise is physical stress. Right. So there's a whole industry that's based upon exercise, get up and move, do this, do that, burn all these calories and all these other things. And in the AAU circuit and um, all these organized and unorganized sports, we have to acknowledge that it, it really is physical stress on the body. So if you have somebody who is going through puberty, going through a growth spurt, um, their diet is changing based upon their growth spurt or, and all these other things, you have all those biological internal things happening to their body. And then also you're putting the demand of 10 hours of practice on their body. Uh, you have a young person who's going to a really high achieving school and they have tons of homework. And so there's a cognitive demand on their body. And then you're putting this physical demand on their body as well. So we really need to figure out ways to kind of balance the social emotional demands or the cognitive demands that a young person's going through with the physical responsibilities that they have to go through for their sport as well. So we're seeing this a little bit in some of the elite prep schools in the area where they've actually decided to reduce the amount of practice time in order to give young people more time to do their homework um, or more time to rest and recover, particularly for those transition age young people who are going through being bombarded with puberty and all these other things and changes just to help them have more time to recover uh, and support their mood development, but also support their development in the sport or the activity that they're doing. Now, on the other on the other side of the coin, um, could stress be a positive source of motivation? In other words, is there is there good stress um, that can actually help kids perform better? I, I think exercise is great stress. Um, I think it's an opportunity to watch yourself grow and develop both mentally and emotionally. Um, I love to lift weights, and I think one of the things that I valued from lifting weights is. I could chart the amount of weight that I could lift last year at this time, and I could look at the amount of weight that I could live or lift at this time, this a year later, and there's going to be growth, hopefully, on that curve. But in the moment, a year ago, I might not have recognized how strong, how powerful, how much positive change I could have now if I stuck to it. But longitudinally, lifting weights is a great opportunity to see what actually happens when you commit yourself to something in a way that's disciplined, in a way that's organized, in a way that's thorough. Same thing happens to sports for hopefully a lot of people. They have an opportunity to begin a sport, get an initiation to it, 
And then if they are able to maintain that relationship with sports for a long time, there's an opportunity to see how far they develop. And for me in particular, when it comes to lacrosse, I can't even count how many relationships and how many opportunities I had through the sport of lacrosse just because I played lacrosse. And for anybody who plays a sport, whether it's an esport or a non-esport, being a part of that community and being insulated and held and supported by that community um, on top of the other communities that you're involved in can bring a lot of benefit, particularly when things go south and you're experiencing stress in your life. So let's shift gears just a little bit and let's talk about the parents. And and really, we really aren't just talking about parents, but we could be talking about aunties, uncles, grandparents. But we know when we are at these games and they are maybe overly invested, they're yelling and screaming on the sidelines, um, they're screaming at the players, they're screaming at their own child, they might be screaming, you know, at the refs. What are some other ways that these individuals can challenge this energy and this investment in a more positive way? And what are some things they just should not do? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a tough conversation to have. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm a, a dad of a four-year-old right now, and I romantically look towards when he hopefully has a relationship with sports and my ability to watch him go out there because I had such good experience going out there and so did my partner. Um, but I think for a lot of parents, we need to recognize that our job as parents when it comes to a lot of these extracurricular activities is to set the table provide the opportunity for your young person to engage with a sport or music or an art or whatever it might be, and then allow them to make of it what they need to make of it. And our job is to encourage, is to motivate, is to um, consult when asked for it. But a part of that is to make sure that we're giving them the appropriate support system to um, engage in that activity as well. So how is the coach? How are the teammates? How is the commute to the team so that we're reducing the burden on the young person to do the sport and do their homework at night? So being able to take all those things into consideration can be beneficial. And then as a society, unfortunately, we've really been taught uh, and conditioned to take out our stress on sports, whether we're the athlete participating, but particularly if we're in the audience and we're the fans. So really, I think for parents, we need to have like a total reevaluation of how we treat uh, athletes in general. Because when I'm on the sideline for a professional sporting event and I hear some of the horrible things that some of the fans say when they're upset, when the team's not performing well, it's disheartening. Because what do you think is happening? Do you think the professional athlete doesn't know that they messed up? Do you think the professional athlete isn't trying to do their best? And so in a similar fashion, we need to have some of those conversations with the parents. Obviously, if somebody's being... Um, unsportsmanlike or unsports person like to your your youth on the field that's one thing but in the context of it being a game that is played that will be played million times over the course of your young person's life we need to put in perspective what we're prioritizing with our comments and also what we're trying to support with our comments as well it, it is hard sometimes to sit in the crowd and be around all of that super negative and sometimes even hostile energy and so what do you do as a coach or as a consultant um, in terms of guiding parents in the right way to be on the sidelines, like how to best support their child or the team or even the coach from the sidelines? Just reminding them about some of the tenets of communication. So one being you're on the sideline, you're not moving. Let's just use a soccer example, right? You're on the sideline, you're not moving, your heart rate's up. 
you're reacting and communicating to people on the field. People on the field, their heart rate's even higher than yours. So they're stressed. They're in fight or flight response because they're moving around trying to figure out and negotiate. They're also moving physically through space. So it's going to be harder for them to hear you because at one point they're going to be 50 yards away from you. At one point, they're going to be five yards away from you. They're trying to, you know, trap the ball, track, catch the ball, throw the ball, do all these different things. And you're yelling instruction to them and you're upset that they can't hear you or they're not uh, putting your instruction into play when also their coach is yelling at them, their teammates are yelling at them, the opponents are yelling. All this data and information is being thrown at them and being bombarded at a adolescent or at a youth. And you're surprised that they're not listening to you. They're trying to do the best that they can to navigate the skill in the sport that, you know, if somebody's 10 years old and they've played soccer for three years, like I got clothes in my laundry that are that are older than three years, not in my laundry, in my closet that are older than three years. So the idea that a lot of these young people have not been doing these sports long enough to gain mastery in them yet, but we're treating them as if they are young professional athletes. We are treating them as if they are all-stars on a little league team when we really need to remember that, you know, if you have a 10-year-old, like your person has only been in elementary school for X number of years. They've probably only been playing their sport seriously for less than that. And we really need to give them some grace and some guidance. And again, set the table. How do I make this experience enjoyable for my youth? And then also when they perform well or they don't perform well, how can I give them the support and the data to help them continue to progress in the way that they want to. I might grow up or my son might grow up and I might have to acknowledge that he might not want to talk to me about the games that he's playing or the sports that he's playing. He might not want my advice. I have to be okay with that, with my own ego uh, and with my own relationship with my son and know that by not, you know, harassing him as soon as the game's over about what he did well or what he didn't, we're going to help him have a better relationship with the sport. So we have a question uh, from a parent. Uh, my son is a sophomore in high school and was recently put on the JV basketball team. He initially had no problem with this until he learned that he was the only sophomore that had not been moved up to varsity. He was absolutely devastated. Socially, this is a disaster. Uh, what should I do as a parent to help? Should I contact the school on his behalf or would that make it worse? So junior varsity is a emotional in a positive way, think for me. So I went to Roxbury Latin. I'm a local kid here. Um, and I didn't make varsity in lacrosse until senior year. So junior year, I came up with the moniker because it, it hurt my feelings, right? A lot of the people that I were in my class were on varsity. So I had a really good coach and we came up with this moniker that I was the self-proclaimed most prolific scorer in JV lacrosse history because I had a lot of goals I was there for a long time because I didn't make varsity and something that initially stung to something that became a source of pride. I took it upon myself to make that team as successful as possible. I took it upon myself to make uh, myself a leader on that team, somebody that would help these players develop into eventual varsity athletes so that that following year when some of the people on JV went with me, they knew what was up. They saw me as a leader and we were able to get the job done when we were on varsity. So I think transitioning from a goal that's lost to a goal that's still able to be obtained is important for that young person. And instead of focusing on what does no longer remains, being able to illuminate to them what does remain. It still remains an opportunity to play the sport that you love, 
It remains an opportunity for you to make the JV team the best JV team. It could be in school history or in your league. Um, it could be the best opportunity you could have to develop. And given that they're a sophomore, there are going to be many more years that you can be on varsity um, and have an opportunity to make that varsity impact that you want. And with certain sports like a basketball, a football, uh, um, not necessarily baseball, but basketball and football in particular, a lot, time, a lot of times those rosters will move throughout the course of the season. So if he's doing a fantastic job on JV and he's getting a ton of points or playing great, great defense, the varsity coach is going to recognize that and maybe he'll be able to move up. But even if he doesn't or she doesn't, the opportunity for that person to take that moment in time to develop as an athlete, to galvanize their teammates and go out and try to be as successful as possible is a great opportunity because particularly at um, MGH, sports psychology, my mentor, Dr. Steve Durant, always has this idea of every game is a gift. And so if you have the opportunity to step on the field or to compete or to show off your talents, that's a gift because one day you won't be able to do it. And so even if it doesn't happen on the team or in the environment that you want it to, you're playing in a constellation round, uh, you're playing in the quote unquote losers bracket, you're playing on JV when you thought you were gonna be on varsity, taking up op the opportunity to be a healthy body, to be able to move in space, to be able to play with your friends, to be able to accomplish this goal and have fun. Um, there's so much of life that we take that's not fun, uh, but to really remind yourself about the opportunities that sport is supposed to bring you this feeling of euphoria, this feeling of togetherness, connectedness, and we really need to tap into that. I, I also would not call the coach. So I think I think what's, what Steve uh, and Richard Ginsburg uh, have, have taught us at MGH in sports psychology is exactly what you're saying. And that is, is that, you know, it's a game. You're supposed to have fun. You want to learn skills. You want to be a member of a team, but you want to make the most of it. And you want to really have fun. I mean, sports are about, it's, it, yes, it's about winning. It's about competition, but it, but if the fun element isn't a part of it, then it, it's, what's the point? Right, right. And to take Steve as an example in, in terms of the experiences he's had and experiences that I have, and I, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but he's a he's a teddy bear at heart. Uh, even though he's from Dorchester, he's a teddy bear at heart. And so his ability to have such a kind, gentle soul while playing a violent sport like rugby, and I did three amateur boxing fights, so for me to have a kind teddy bear type soul, but to punch somebody in the face repeatedly, um, that ability to have that dichotomy comes from an understanding and appreciation for self, the gratitude of the situation, and being able to toe the line of doing something inherently that your mind wouldn't want you to do, but being able to do it in a that's controlled, that acknowledges the person who's in the ring with you, or for Steve, the person who's on the rugby field with you, but still be able to perform to the best of your abilities and to give yourself and your opponent the best of yourself so that in that competition, you are honoring the competition. Not only the people who, for me, not only the people who will box after me, but the people who've boxed before me and also honoring myself that if I'm going to train this hard, if I'm going to do this type of strict dieting, if I'm going to allow other people to hit me in my face, then I'm going to hit back with a level for appropriate. And that speaks to what I am capable of doing. And I think that that is something particularly for young people, young people may shy away from being that assertive and sports allows you that opportunity to be able to go there, but also learn how to go back. Me learning how to box made me better at de-escalating my aggression when I get super angry. 
I'm sure Steve learned playing rugby for however long he played that helped him better get to that aggressive place, but also come down from that aggressive place and building that, that uh, better sense of self-awareness is really important for anybody of any age, but particularly for young people as they work on trying to control and understand their impulsivity and their relationship with anger. I won't, I won't get, I won't get too political here, but what you're saying is that I, we don't see enough of today is to love and respect your opponent. Yeah. You know, I I mean, and what a, what a beautiful concept that is. And and I wish we saw more of that. That's just a comment. Khadija, I interrupted. I'm sorry. No, no. I I think it's a great segue to talk about um, the the gift of sports and the, the honor and privilege to be able to play because there'll come a time where maybe you won't be able to play. And, thinking about kids who are so tightly connected, their identities and their self-esteem is so tightly connected to the sports that they play. And how do we support athletes, young athletes, when they get hurt? Um, Because it is sometimes pretty devastating. They might be out for a couple of games or they might be out for an entire season or in the most, most extreme circumstances, they might not be able to play the sport again. So how do we support these young people when they face injuries and help them to be able to approach it and look at it through the lens of gratitude. Um, yeah, uh, I, I agree with that. I think one of the things that we forget, but we know, but we forget, <laughs> we have to remember is that injuries are traumatic, right? Injuries follow the definition of a trauma. Everything's going all right. And then something happens, which radically changes your day, your life, your week, whatever. And so we have to deal with the physical trauma of an injury. You turn one way, you, you experience tremendous pain, discomfort, loss of consciousness, whatever it might be. And now you're in panic mode. Your body's in panic mode, your mind's in panic mode because you don't know what happened. Um, and you may have done that move a million times, or you may have played your sport a million times, but that one time you did it, there was a negative outcome. That is traumatic. We get, we uh, the 24 hour news cycle just, pelts us with injury updates. So-and-so got an injury. So-and-so got an injury. So-and-so got an injury. So we treat it as a commonality. And I think we lose attachment to what an injury actually is. An injury is physical harm perpetrated on the body. So when a young person is injured, we don't initially, we don't need to care about how long they're going to be out. We need to deal with the pain management and, and the trauma and the sadness of just being in pain, not being able to move, and being bewildered about what just happened. Because for most of the times, people don't know they're about to get injured. They just end up getting injured. And so we need to address that first. And so when, particularly at MGH, we take more of a trauma-focused approach to injury recovery, where we work through that stuff first, help the person understand what happened from a journalistic standpoint, what happened from a medical standpoint. So the force you put on your knee when you twisted this way, caused this to break or this to rupture. And then we start talking about getting back, but we do it in a developmental approach where the day after the surgery, we're not necessarily talking about playing. We're talking about, okay, let's hit these steps. Let's hit these incremental goals so that not only hopefully you can play later on, but we want you to be healthy. We want you to be able to use your body for the rest of your life in as much of an appropriate or similar way you could before the injury. And so when we take that approach, we acknowledge the whole person as opposed to just the athlete. And we find that that's better. Excuse me. When a person's injured, we kind of think about, okay, we're going to reduce the amount of the pie chart that's focused on sports. 
now there's a vacuum of free space available. What do we want to use for that free space? Because you may have dedicated, particularly a professional athlete, they dedicate so many hours to their craft every week or every day. Now they have to dedicate less because they physically are unable to compete or they're injured. So what can we do with that time? Hey, do you want to get your college degree? Hey, do you want to spend more time with your your kids? Hey, do you want to um, work on your finances or work on some of your marketing opportunities? Do you want to learn your position better? Do you have time to dedicate to your teammates? So figuring out what's of interest to them and then getting enthusiastic about it, just like we get enthusiastic about them playing on the field or them playing on the court. And then also get them to understand that your injury, particularly for professional athletes, is a preview of what it's going to be like when you are no longer physically able to play anymore, when you're retiring. So let's use some of this time to preview what comes up for you, what thoughts, feelings, emotions, what behaviors come up, good or bad, and how do we uh, prepare for that eventual day? Because we have, we're, we're fortunate to kind of have a preview of it while you're dealing with this, let's say, month-long, week-long or months long injury. That that's that's an awesome way to approach it because when you an athlete being injured on TV, the focus is purely about how long will they be out when they, when will they be able to return to the game. And we do know for so many that when they leave the sport, that is such a difficult, challenging period for them. Um, but but just going back to the younger people, how do we help them to develop a sense of identity and to build their sense of self worth that's not so tightly connected to the sport? I mean, I think I think that starts pre-injury. Um, I've always been a um, supporter of the idea of trying to build renaissance youth. Oh, the person who can run, catch, throw, but also can doodle a little bit, can, you know, hum a few bars of a song, um, can give us public talk. So really kind of getting a 360 view of the capabilities of the person so that when plan A it's a dead end or the door's locked or whatever, there's plan B and plan C that the person also feels confident and comfortable in. When we find is when a child specializes in a sport too early, and then for whatever reason, they experience a roadblock in it. So in tennis, for me, I was going to not go to college if I'm just going to either go for tennis or not go to college, um, which is a tough conversation in my household. Um, then I broke my toe and I couldn't play hardcore sports for a while. If I didn't have other things that I could rely upon from a confidence standpoint and a this still makes me me standpoint, I would have been in big trouble. But because I was born and developed and raised in that way of thinking of being a renaissance person, I had other things to fall back on. And so when a young person is first adopting or getting involved in sports, we want to encourage the parents too to say, Find some non-sports activities for this person to get involved with. Find some non-sport friends for this person to get connected with. Find some non-sports physical activities for them to do so that they can just remain healthy and not only have the only relationship they have with health and wellness be playing their sport or not the only relationship they have with social relationships be the teammates that they play with. And, and so as they're finding and develop these non-sports activities and connections, which I think is super important, how do we... Or is there a way for them to also stay connected to the game or to their teammates, even if they can't play due to injury? I think it's a great opportunity to see the game from another perspective. I think a lot of people are used to seeing it on the field, on the ice, on the court. Uh, but when you are on the bench and you're you're taken away from it and you can watch it from that vantage point of, again, physiologically, your heart rate's lower, your body's not moving, you're able to hear and see things a little bit differently if you have those abilities. And so it provides people with the opportunity to experience the game differently. And that could give them 
the sense of, huh, maybe I really like coaching the sport, or maybe I'd love to work in this industry when I'm done playing with the sport. And so getting other senses of the communities around that support the team, as opposed to just, I'm an athlete, uh, because, you know, I never knew I'd be working with professional sports, um, you know, after college and, and after grad school, but that's where I am. And so I think for a lot of people who are athletes, very few of them are going to be professional athletes, but there are so many jobs within sports um, and even in non-sport environments where the skills and the um, traits that you have to cultivate to be a good athlete are praised and are um, sought highly in those fields and in those environments. So, so as we wrap up, you gave us some really great tips about how we can begin to expand um, kids' exposures, help them develop their identity outside of sports and build their, their self-esteem and self-worth. Is there anything else that you would give in terms of tips to parents about how they can create a more positive relationship between sports and mental health? Um, I think if parents have an experience playing sports during their past, really just sharing that with their young people. Um, I think young people, including myself, when I was young, I thought my parents were perfect when it came to sports just because I knew they played sports. But being able to kind of talk to them about some of the trials and tribulations that they had while playing, maybe challenges with a coach or challenges with teammates or challenges managing loss kind of normalizes things and then may make that young person more willing to get help either from their parent or from a provider like myself when they encounter those situations. So again, reducing the expectation for your young person that you expect them to be perfect and acknowledge the fact that sports requires some element of error so that you can learn and develop and grow. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, JJ. Um, we hope this has been informative and a helpful conversation. I certainly have learned quite a bit. Um, to wrap up on a positive note, JJ, What's something you're looking forward to over the next week or so? It's a great question. Um, I'm actually working right now on a project to support underrepresented groups in golf. Uh, and so I'm going to be working more on that project. And it's exciting because I think we're going to try to not only get more underrepresented people in golf, so that includes right now female golfers and, and golfers of color, but we're also going to give them a platform to tell their stories and and really get excited about uh, building that community. So that's something that I'm working on this next week and also spending time with my little guy. Uh, we call him Bubba, but his name's Ford. Uh, is always always a pleasure. So I love doing that and hopefully I'll get more and more uh, opportunity to do that this week. Well, thank you everybody. Don't forget that episodes will be airing every third Thursday of the month. Make sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And we hope that our conversation helps you have yours. I'm Gene Barresen. And I'm Kitty Jibbles Watkins. That's all, folks. And it's only going to be about like 20 minutes, right? Total? after we'll probably, we'll probably talk for about it all, depends on, it all depends on Jane. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you mean I talk too? Are you saying I talk too much? I mean, I didn't, that's not what I said, but. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs>